This is part one of a two-part podcast. All right, it's recording. See the numbers? Can you see the numbers now? Uh, no. What? You were too fast. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. okay we're 10, ten seconds. seconds into this podcast and we've said nothing. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to start? Okay. Um, all right, so I'm sitting here with Fred and Jocelyn, and uh, uh, Jocelyn's got this spiffy idea that um, once a week we're going to have this scheduled time in my calendar that I can't do anything else but record podcasts. See, and, I'm helping you get them done again. Yeah, that's right. You you started this whole mess. I did. Ages ago, years ago. Like, All right. like you like to say, I covet that blame. You covet that blame. That's uh, actually a, a, a quote from The Tick, um, and, and it's one of the creepiest episodes of The Tick ever, armless uh, but not harmless. No, I don't like it as it's, much. It's, it's, uh, it's Venus and Milo, so there's this woman named Venus who has a superpower of seducing men, and, and, uh, and, and Venus perpetually blames Milo, and Milo says, I covet that blame. Okay. Yeah, so this is, this is a podcast about The Tick now. So, Great. All right. Great. Poor Fred. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen all the episodes of The Tick, Fred? I don't think I've seen a single episode of The Tick. I would require my past girlfriends to watch all the episodes with me. And then I was girlfriendless. And then I met Jocelyn, and I did not require her to watch all of them. I think I, think I made you watch four or five. Thank you. <laughs> you didn't care for The Tick. <laughs> it's funny. It's it is. Fun. It's just damn not, good. Just not my thing. <laughs> All right, the DVDs are finally out. We finally got them. They're they're done. Everybody should have them. Um, uh, we had some people who did not provide us with their mailing address, which makes it difficult to mail it to them. And it seems like once a week somebody stands up and says, "Where the fuck are my DVDs?" And you fucking bastards never sent them. And then we find out, well, you, you didn't give us your mailing address. So. No, people have been really nice. Even when I screwed up and missed sending it to somebody, they've been, oh, thank you. Thank you for sending it right away. They've been really nice. Even when my spreadsheet magic wasn't so much magic. There there have been some really lovely people that have been really smooth and, and working with us and getting everything sorted out. But there have also been some people that have been kind of psychotic about it. And then, like, we had somebody who was like, where the fuck are my DVDs? And then it's like, you didn't buy the DVDs. You bought the digital download. And then they're kind of like, they still want the physical DVDs. And they're really angry that they don't have them. All right. Well, anyway, you're looking at my list. You want to see what it is? What should I be talking about? Oh, now that the DVDs are out, here's here's the thing. So the first DVD of the four DVDs is set up to be a really good standalone. Now, if you, I know Fred. I know you've watched all all four DVDs. Are they any good? They're great. Uh, great. <laughs> He's a smart man. <laughs> yeah. It, it does seem like the feedback has been universally positive. Um, I keep waiting to hear, except for the people that somebody was like really upset because they wanted the resolution to be different. Like, like, oh, I paid the lowest possible price, but I want the stuff that comes with the higher priced option. Right. And and it's like, okay, did you want to pay the extra? No, I want to pay the same and. No one should put out stuff of, you know, old school resolution where that was the only resolution from three years ago. No, that's unacceptable. All right. But the thing I'm taking the longest way to say is like, okay, DVD one is called uh, Building a Cobb Style Rocket Mass Heater. 
and um, it's designed to be a standalone DVD. And uh, we've talked in the past about residual income streams, and it is set up with an 80% affiliate fee, which is basically all the proceeds. Right. It's, it's pretty much everything I get. So if somebody goes to buy the DVD through the digital download, then Scubbly takes a percentage, and then they charge extra because it's such a massive file. And uh, and then if somebody were to like buy it through with foreign currency and there'd be a conversion rate, then the money is all gone. So 80% is as high of an affiliate fee as it allows you to set. Um, so the thing is, is that if anybody makes a web page and directs people to it, they can have all of the proceeds, and that helps to get the word out about rocket mass heaters. Right. So... Um, it, like you said, it's a really good standalone, and it's also an introduction and talks about the other DVD sets. So obviously you're offering this great deal just to get people exposed to the topic and get interest in them wanting to learn more. And along the lines of residual income streams, we had that gal Julianne here about a month ago. Right. And apparently she listened to my podcast from about three years ago about residual income streams. And then she went out and did it. And now she and her family are spending six months driving around the country. Um, and they're able to do that because of the residual income streams she's built up based upon my advice. So she stopped by here and we recorded a podcast for her new podcast. Uh, about residual income streams. Well, I think she does a podcast with somebody else. But anyway, yeah. No, the podcast is called something like Girls with Braids or something Braid like Braid Girls. Braid Girls. Yeah. So on that day, which I think is like podcast number 38 for her series, I was a braid girl. And so <laughs> I, 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 I could probably get a braid going in my hair if I tried. People didn't, you know, so people don't see a picture of you. They don't know I don't have braids. So... Uh, if you hear weird noise in the background, crackling, I'm cracking and peeling eggs because they're easier to peel while they're still slightly warm. And they just came out of a solar cooker. Uh, we have some sun here in November, and I cooked hard-boiled eggs in a solar cooker. But they're not boiled. They're just, you know, no water. But So I'm cracking and peeling eggs while we talk so, right. for the noise in the background. Getting, and what are you going to make? Are you going to do deviled eggs or something? I could. Uh, oh. You like deviled oh, eggs. So this is like you don't know what you're going to do with them yet. No, I was just testing the solar oven. Fred's a vegan. Do these eggs offend you? They don't offend me, but I'm not interested in them. <laughs> yeah, you're not over here thinking, boy, I'd like to have some deviled eggs, too. Hard-boiled eggs smell, so I apologize, Fred. <laughs> they are just some of the stinkiest food. Sorry. The, the pod people have to imagine the stink. Yeah. Okay, so the other thing is is that all the rest of the DVDs are set up with the 40% affiliate fee, which I've got on all of my stuff. Um, I, I think the funny thing is that whenever anybody gives me any marketing advice, then I just say, well, why don't you use your own marketing advice and go and get the 80% affiliate fee for that thing? I, I announced this like a month ago, and I think three people have sold three copies of it so far with the 80% affiliate fee. I'm, I thought there'd be somebody who's really smart at marketing 
and then they would like set up um, ads on Google or something, and and then uh, they'd sell thousands of copies and make lots of money, but. Not. I think we a lot of people in permaculture want to be out there doing it and not as much at their computers. We I've mentioned that before. I think we run into that a lot. True, but at the same time, like if they go and they set up a web page and then they start earning, you know, a thousand dollars a month, then they can go and have permaculture freedom rather than having to keep going to some job that they don't want to go to. Right. So, um, but hey, you know, you either do it or you don't, I guess. Um, oh, some we we've got the the thread out of Permies where you can um, rate stuff, and uh, people where it's it's something out of ten acorns. Um, they've all been ten out of t- ten acorns, except one person who gave it twelve out of ten acorns. <laughs> I, I kind of like, but they didn't follow the right format, so I, I don't think that's going to show up in in the review grid thing. But yeah, those reviews are awesome. Erica's book is out, uh, the Builder's Guide to Rocket Mass Heaters. Uh, I think it is an excellent book. I think that uh, uh, the, I mean, the book mentions. Uh, the prime, the, the the primary build in the book is the one up at uh, Cooper Cabin, which is the first half of DVD one. So DVD one and the book go together really well. Have you guys read the book yet? Have you, Fred, have you read the book yet? I've just glanced through it. I haven't made time to read it yet. As I get closer to trying to build one someday, I will read that book thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Jocelyn? Right. Glance through it and, and read a section or two. But sorry, uh-huh. Erica. I, I we had love to, you, Erica. I had to review it so that my, my name appears. My name appears in the book like 20 times or something like that. But anyway, they, they wanted me to write a blurb, yeah. a book blurb. And so I, I read it when I was on my back still. Um, this is probably a good time to mention that. I mean, I think in the podcast I've mentioned the thing where I've been on my back. I've had people asking around. So I, I had cervical radiculopathy, which is a stupid name. Yeah, which is basically radiating nerve pain caused, you know, that originates in the cervix or the neck. So I always thought the cervix was a thing that was kind of up in a woman's innards, but um, cervical. I shouldn't say yeah. cervix. Yeah, I said it wrong. Okay, all right. I said all it right. wrong. So uh, suddenly it sounded like I had lady parts, <laughs> and they were broken lady parts. No. And they made my arm hurt a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but um, while I was on my back for three months. Um, I'm now able to move around. I think the only problem I have now is I have a hard time standing still for like more than a minute. And that's the only residual thing. And I'm still trying to get stronger and move around more. Yeah. We, we, as people are probably painfully aware, it was the radiating nerve pain was from a bulging disc that was pressing on your spinal cord. And, uh, we're still working, you know, your body actually reabsorbed or adsorbed. I don't know the correct term. Uh, that bulge, we think. And that's how, your uh, nerve pain went away mostly, but you still have some bulges here and there, and we're just working at. <laughs> You're trying to call me fat? No, <laughs> I was not, but that came out wrong, and um, <laughs> we amused Fred too. So I, 
yeah, but we are working on improving health, reducing inflammation, you know, helping your body to repair and restore as much as possible. Yeah. All right. Except for Halloween. Right. We ate a lot of candy on Halloween. That's probably, it was probably good for me somehow. I'm just not sure how to justify it yet. <laughs> um, easy. All right. So Erica's book is out. The two complement each other. And then um, all the stuff for the new DVDs is at richsoil.com slash heat. Um, you know, I, although I think we got links at like permies.com homepage and the rich soil homepage. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. Richsoil.com slash heat. Um, there's, we've, we've had a lot of discussion here as people that are doing the ant village thing, uh, deep roots thing, and, and then we run into people who are like looking for land and, um, they desperately want to activate homesteader mode or permaculture mode with acreage kind of a thing. And I, I feel powerfully compelled to tell the story, and I feel like in the last couple of months I've told the story so many times, it's it's time to get into a podcast. I'm pretty sure I haven't mentioned this in a podcast before. And it's a, a couple of little little stories, really. But, but the first one is, is that when I lived out on Mount Spokane, there was a property near mine. It had 80 acres, a house, a barn, some outbuildings. It had a little tiny creek. Uh, it was about three hundred thousand uh, dollars, forty-five minutes uh, to um, Spokane. And since banks won't touch acreage, then uh, there was owner financing, and that's a it's a pretty standard thing. And I've talked on this podcast about owner financing stuff before. And so, uh, what would happen is is that the uh, uh, couple would buy it. They would put down one third down as the standard, one third down, and then some percent. And usually, it's a pretty fixed percent when you do owner financing. Um, and so, they'd put one third down, and then they'd be making these mortgage payments. And um, but like one third down was like everything that they had. And so they put down all their money. So it's a, a $300,000 property. So they had to put down $100,000. And then for a couple of years, they're probably making payments of about $2,000 a month as a mortgage payment, in which case they got to keep a day job. But now they've got this 45-minute commute. they got to go 45 minutes each way uh, into Spokane and back, and they've got to have a, a job in Spokane. And I don't really like Spokane very much, so not a great place to really have a job. But you've got to work and work and work and work. In the meantime, your whole idea was that this dream of having acreage and being able to do stuff with the acreage. And the the... The finish line, the ending of the story is that the guy that sold the property sold it five times. So each of the five times, I'm sure that there's a different story, but but after a couple of years, two, three years, the, the couple would either walk away from it or fall behind or maybe they would whatever but somehow it kept ending up going back to the guy that did the owner financing and then the in between story is is that i think that a lot of people are in that position where they they try to have a job and do their homesteading dream and they do they get all the animals they plant the big garden they do all the things that they've been dreaming of doing for so long and it's just too much and they just 
kill themselves. Um, well, and most people in America, too, are used to, uh, you know, just one family or one couple in a residence, in a quite large residence, which True. is not how most of the rest of the world lives. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the rest of the world, you're living with your in-laws or your outlaws. And and I think we all know that we that I know, for example, I don't want to live with my parents and I definitely don't want to live with your parents. <laughs> and I think my children have voted that they don't want to live with me. Right. So, <laughs> so have my children. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, there's downsides to that path. Well, and that's American culture. That's pretty typical American culture. So when you have fewer adults to both physically and financially support a household, it's 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 more onerous. And so did you have anything, Fred? Uh, no, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> Doing podcasts with Fred is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think the thing I want to point out is that, and, and then the, the next one is very similar. In fact, I'm going to move on to that and I'm going to come back to this point that I'm making. Um, and I've met dozens and dozens of people but I'm, that, that are in this exact same boat. But I one time, I went to a yard sale that was like probably a quarter of a mile away from the property I was just talking about and two miles away from where I lived. A really pretty little farm with a pond right next to the road. Uh, I was there for a yard sale one time and I'm asking the gal about like, you know, what's, what's the story here, you know? And, and, uh, she talked about how like about seven years earlier they bought the property and they started off with cows and goats and everything and big gardens and chickens and, and of course, they had to keep working in order to pay the mortgage. So they were living in Spokane and then they moved to 45 minutes outside of Spokane to, you know, do the dream. Um, after about three years, they scaled way down. And, uh, when I was talking to her seven years after they'd moved there, she was saying that they really regretted the entire experience that that they were sure that homesteading, and I, I think this could be applied to permaculture as well, um, was the ultimate dream. And and there is nothing else they'd rather do with their lives. And then they got they, they, they got what they wished for and a mortgage and and then they hated it. Um and and just real quick frosting on this, I think I've mentioned this in a podcast before how um, community living, uh, and I think it, I think it could be true for homesteading as well, is is a primary ingredient in a lot of divorce. Um, I, I think it's the Windward community that I've mentioned before, where they've got a huge document talking about how a couple will come to their community, and then one person out of the couple will be like, "This is awesome," and the other person in the couple is like, "I can't catch my breath." I'm not having a good time. Um, and then, you know, three or four weeks down the road and divorce is imminent. Um, and then the one person who's in love with the place stays and the one person who's not leaves. So I, it's different. And I guess 
when I started thinking about a lot of the things that I did, and and then my own story has a thing where I'm on Mount Spokane, and I'm I've got my property, and I'm doing all kinds of things there, and I come to the conclusion of like to do all the things that I want to do, I I cannot possibly do it all by myself, and. For all the things that need to be learned, I don't think I could even learn it all by myself. And I want to be so great at all of this. And I came to the conclusion of um, I want to go someplace and be with like a dozen other people. And they are all as bonkers about this as I am, or maybe even more so that that they're all leading me into awesomeness. And and so then I'm going to how how do you get together with a group of people like this? And so this was this was the place where I was at. Man, that had to, that was 2005. So 11 years ago. 11 years ago, it's like I and I I basically came to the conclusion like I got to figure out how community works. And so then great things can be built with community. Um, and, and at the time, I'd been watching the Sepp Holzer videos, the three-in-one videos, which are amazing. Um, and uh, I want, I, I wanted to basically have that, um, but with a dozen people. And there could be people that are some somebody who is who's really amazing with bees, and somebody who's really amazing with cattle, and somebody who's really amazing with gardens, and somebody who's really amazing with hogs, and somebody who's really amazing with cooking, and somebody who's really ama- amazing with food preservation, etc., etc., etc. All these super, super amazing people, and I don't have to just do it all for a bunch of onlookers. And so, all right. Back to the point that I'm trying to make. I think that when people get right down to it, a lot of times they can't pull it off. Um, they they want to, or maybe they lose interest. They they get in there and they try it for a while, and they realize that their dream is not really for them. But you've kind of made a huge commitment. And so with that guy that sold that same 80 acres over and over and over again, those people must have just walked away and gone back to regular jobs, rented in an apartment, and said, yeah, I did the cows and chickens thing once, but I'm not going to do it again. It turns out it wasn't for me. And so, all right, so that's that's a really, really long-winded way of trying to be able to say, I've been trying to solve that problem for 11 years now. And I, we we arrived here three years ago and we tried some stuff and we're going to kind of retry some of those ideas and we also tried Ant Village and we've tried some other village ideas. We've tried a variety of things. Right. I I just wanted to go back and, and I know um, Fred has been uh, living a lot of these ideals, I think, from just his lifestyle. So I'd love to hear Fred's comments about this kind of thing, too. But almost 30 years ago, I learned about co-housing. I wasn't quite ready to even consider an intentional community. But 30 years ago, I was really concerned about my impact on the environment. 
and the co-housing model seemed to be the closest that I could consider about reducing my impact where, you know, it's a community where people could share a magazine subscription or share a wood chipper or share, you know, different tools and things like that. So, like, not every household needed different kinds of equipment, but the community could kind of share with each other and and, and have community meals and things like that. And it just made so much sense to me because as a becoming a young mother, wanting the best food for myself and my children and wanting the least impact on the environment, it was hard to do everything from scratch and grow everything yourself. I was running up against similar obstacles that you were out on Mount Spokane. How can I do all this? The person I was married to at the time was not at all interested in co-housing. So it was only something I could kind of look at from afar and ended up homeschooling my daughter with some people who were in a co-housing community. So I kind of was a peripheral community member a little bit for a while. But I think there are a lot of people who want to figure out how to have the least impact. And some of those things take a lot of time and they're hard to do. And and you just can't do everything. And we, and some people are trying to take a step back from the normal everyday work a day rat race job, but they, they need, they need to have a roommate to do that or they need all different kinds of things. There's so much about it. And, and we've had conversations lately about all the, um, standing rock protests, how people are like, ooh, corporations are bad. They're putting evil pipelines everywhere. <laughs> well, you know, how do you not support that as a consumer? That's, I mean, we have all bought into these fossil fuel systems. How do we opt out of the fossil fuel systems? And there's, there's things you can do to start moving to where you're not supporting fossil fuel systems as much. But again, it's work and it takes community and it takes a very different lifestyle. Say, I'd love to hear what Fred has to say about that too, except you now have about 10 minutes. I have like, I want to, I want to take a steaming dump on your thing about the wood chipper because I think that oh. wood chipper has no place True. in permaculture. And True. then as far as the standing rock thing goes, I mean, for everything that comes up and there's like problems in the world, I kind of feel like, I mean, I've, as I've festered over these things over my entire life, yeah. there's always something new, yeah. then, you know, the, uh, it's like what Martin Luther King Jr. says about um, nonviolent, uh, you know, uh, protesting. And he's like, first you have to cleanse yourself. You have to be kind of, you know, you have to be better and all that. And and I kind of feel like, all right, so that particular one is about petroleum. And and it's like, but we still use petroleum. I can't make a stand against that until I cleanse myself, which is to stop using petroleum. So, all right, all right, what can I do? And I, I kind of think, step one, can we get a community so that the desire to drive anywhere is reduced to twice a year instead of like what most people do where they drive somewhere like three or four times a day and their whole commute is based on petroleum and driving. Yeah. And then of course the next step is is like okay, how do I 
reduce plastic. And so then I kind of feel like on the lab, that's one of the things we talked about. Um, you know, the second section has 10 times less plastic. Um, the third section has a hundred times less plastic. And so it's, it's like, but we've got to actually be implementing these systems before we can go and say, okay, now we've gotten to the point that we've got, we've eliminated 99% of the petroleum from our lives. Now let's go be pissed off at those guys. <laughs> so, cause I kind of wonder, and, and in fact, was it, was it you, Fred, that was talking about you saw somebody and they were fresh from, somebody was talking to us about how they were, Visiting with somebody fresh from the the fight. Oh, that was Janet. Okay. Janet met somebody in nearby who was driving through uh, from Standing Rock back to the Seattle area or something. Right, in a Jeep Cherokee or something like that. It's like right. that. That's got to get crappy mileage. You well, know, shouldn't if you're going to go protest, shouldn't there be at least four of you in a Prius? You know, if you're going to go protest, you know, petroleum shit. You know, and, and it kind of seems because that's what it's all about. And, and along those lines, a rocket mass heater, a rocket mass heater, um, reduces your carbon footprint so much that it's the same as if you parked seven cars. If you switch from electric heat to a rocket mass heater, it's the same reduction in carbon footprint as if you parked seven cars. And I think that there's probably some other forms of pollution that are mixed in there too that's like the same as parking seven cars. And and so if we're talking about, you know, reducing our overall, you know, footprint in, in many, many respects, then, you know, man, I'm just I'm kind of feeling like, you know, everybody should be building a rocket mass heater. Well, not everybody, but, you know, could, couldn't half the population build a rocket mass heater this year and then maybe the other half could do it next year? Just, just a thought. I'm, it, it frustrates me to hear the news and people are like, oh, I'm so angry about all the things. And it's like, what are you doing besides waving your fist around in the air? Right. Well, and that's why I was testing a solar oven in the winter. I mean, most of the time I would prefer to cook in the house to help keep the house warm in the winter. But some people are trying to live off grid. They may, you know, all... But if you're cooking with electricity that's based on coal or elect or a stove that's using propane or natural gas, uh, I mean, you're still participating in fossil fuel systems. And maybe if you switch to cooking with a solar oven, even in the winter, sometimes you wouldn't be using as many fossil fuels. But I. I okay. Fred, you have to say things now. <laughs> Hold this. Um. Yeah, I don't know where to start. You guys covered a lot of stuff there. Too much. <laughs> but yeah. um, as far as as living in community, I you know when I moved out of how my parents' house, I first lived with you know one other person in a, in an apartment, and then and then I lived in an apartment by myself, and then um, some friends had an opening at their apartment, and I realized that by like moving in with them, I would save more money over. Even though I was going to lose my my deposit on the, you know the rent because I broke my lease, that I would save more money in like two months than I was paying for an apartment by myself. So it was like a financial decision to live with lots of other people. And in this apartment, people had made bedrooms where there wasn't normally bedrooms, you know. But we were able to share, you know, we shared, you know, we mostly rode bikes, um, but you know, not everyone needs a bike pump or all the bike tools, so we shared those and. Um, somebody has a truck, and if you need a truck once in a while, you just 
fill it up with gas when you borrow it, you know, so we don't, everyone didn't need our own vehicle. Um, and I got to a point where our one house I was living in, the expenses were so low because of how many people live there that I could work three weeks and that would pay the rent for the year. Wow. So, um, that's that impressive. Left the rest of the year for, you know, learning and trying things and exploring and traveling and and gardening you've and, done a lot of gardening and a bit of gardening yeah yeah <laughs> and and some of the things you know gardening takes longer than it does to buy you know a, a cabbage at the grocery store but uh when you're not working as much then you have more time to do that kind of stuff or we would go we would go dumpster diving and um you know you might spend a couple hours going to several different dumpsters and then you get home really late but when you live with other people, then somebody else can do the processing and sorting and, you know, putting all this stuff in the freezer or whatever, depending on what we ended up with. And so we were able to share, you know, time resources like that, too. But then um, it's, it's something that I wouldn't have had time for to, pro, you know, to make my own mustard and make my own mayonnaise if I had been working 40 hours a week right. and commuting you know, um, 10 hours a week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, more of a, more along the road to the Gert lifestyle that Paul talks about. Yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned the Gert thing in a podcast. Oh. Have I? I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah. Gonna have to get to that. So you, you made mayonnaise. I think you just told us it was vegan mayonnaise. Oh, vegan mayonnaise. All right. I was going to say that. I didn't clarify. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. We would make our own, we made our own soy milk. So then we had the okara leftover, which is the pulp when you make soy milk. So then we would make, um, sausage from that. Uh, And then to use the sausage, we made a lot of sandwiches. So I made my own mustard and mayonnaise and we'd get cucumbers and lettuce from the garden, tomatoes and. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it sounds gross. No. <laughs> Actually, I I think I would do fine on a vegan diet. You've, you've said that. I've I've done it. I've done vegan. Spent time being a being a vegan of sorts in the past. <clears throat> Not because it's like I've decided to be a vegan, but because it's like um, somebody else was cooking. somebody else was cooking, <laughs> and all they ever cooked was vegan food, and it was good, and I ate it, and I got on just fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, to wrap up with the, the, the topic and get moving along here, I want to point out that uh, uh, Jesse, uh, Jesse Grimes, uh, he's one of the ants here. Uh, he's been putting out pretty regular videos of his build and stuff like that. And the last few of them, uh, he's been saying, like, uh, he encourages somebody to come out and be a gapper and help him with what he's doing. Cause he's got that whole bike park kind of thing, the the BMX jumps and stuff kind of a thing and that he's trying to do on his plot and and uh, he thinks that there's going to be some other BMX kind of people that want to come out but the the key is is that I think what he's going through now is, is a lot like what I went through 11 years ago and that it's like doing this by yourself um you you could just because you kind of get the feeling like I want to I want to not just drink raw milk but I want to know that the raw milk meets a, a great permaculture standard. 
and that you know we did they didn't just buy hay because it was convenient and the hay is full of toxic gick and and so that's coming through in the milk um, they didn't <clears throat> Um, spray or instead of worming through uh, by by using paddock shift systems combined with working in chickens and stuff like that, they're using toxic gick as a wormer or something like that. So I just I just kind of wanted something where, like, I knew that that was the case for the for the raw milk and and for the honey and and for the vegetables and and that you know everything was harvested in a way that you know meets my standards. But there's no way to do it all by yourself. Now with Ant Village, I think you can get a little bit of that as we see some of the ants taking on certain aspects and doing more. And so then you've got maybe somebody is like going to eventually get a dairy cow. And then somebody else is going to have, like, effectively a, a market garden. And I, I kind of think that's probably going to be Kai. <laughs> and, and Kai. Or seeds. Ah, I've heard the guys talk about wanting to sell seeds down the road. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I know that several, I mean, I know Fred does and Kai does, and several of the guys are, like, perpetually harvesting seeds off of things all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, you know, there's certain plants that are only found in one little part of base camp or the lab, and there's other sections where it's just grass, so we take the seeds and spread them around and help increase diversity. And I think this winter would be a really good time to do a lot more. We did some seed balls, was it last winter or the winter before that? I think the winter before that. Um, but this year would be a great year to do a lot of seed balls. I think um, Kai made some seed balls during the PDC, and then um, there was maybe, I don't know if there was rain or what happened, but the where they were put to dry out, they didn't dry out fast enough, and a lot of the seeds sprouted before the clay dried. <laughs> so that those are not being used this fall as as uh, seed balls because they all sprouted. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. right. All right. All right. That's a bummer. Um. I'm, I guess solutions are the rest of the message, and that is um, that if a person does even the Ant Village program, they could come out here and be out here for three or four years, and then they could say, I've decided that this is my forever lifestyle, and then convert to deep roots, or they can just continue paying rent as an ant. Um, or uh, they might say after two years, like, this was a lot of work because we've had a lot of people come out as ants and they'll rent their plot for the first 18 months and then they come out and then after four or five months, it's like, oh, I've decided to go see my family over on the East Coast and then they mysteriously never return, <clears throat> which is legit. They can do that. Um, and I think I think a lot of people learn about themselves and, and with the Ant Village stuff that's kind of the whole idea is everybody thinks that they're an ant until you actually try and then you find out that you might actually be a grasshopper um and and so then the people where they would you know put that down payment on that 80 acres maybe they found out that they were grasshoppers and that being an ant was not for them um, at the same time, there are a lot of people where they come out, whether they come out here or they come out to the country, and they've they've gone out and then they bought their land. And <clears throat> Dick Prenicky 
30 years later, he was still out in Alaska, in the middle of the wilderness, loving it. And now I, I've heard that he did travel, to, I think he was from Minnesota or something, and he would travel back to Minnesota generally once a year to go see friends and family. But um, but he still lived in Alaska. Uh, so for some people, it's true. It is their dream, and and their dream is awesome. And they go out and they do it, and they stick to it. And for some people, they try it, and it's time to move on. So I guess the thing I'm trying to say is like, for the people that got that 80 acres, they probably spent 150 grand on the land. They may have put 40 grand into improvements and whatnot. And then maybe they walk out of that $200,000 lighter and then they just go back to living in an apartment in the city. And I suppose that part of what we're doing here is we're saying, like, you know, come in and part with 1200 bucks, and you can get an ant plot and find out whether you're an ant or a grasshopper instead of $200,000. Well, for a little bit of perspective, from the few Dick Prennicky, um movies I watched, what was the name of the first one? Just to- Alone in the Wilderness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, it seemed he hunted and fished, but he bought the rest of his food, the rest of his staples and things besides the hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he might have gardened some. He did, you know, build a root cellar kind of thing. Uh, I think I remember for he food. He planted storage. rhubarb. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he did some gardening. Um, maybe not to the scale we keep imagining gardens out here. Uh, I just keep going back to when my kids were really young and I was trying to figure out what it was to be a homemaker. And I was usually at least had a part time job in addition to being a homemaker and kids. I was always trying to figure out where does the time go? What do I want to spend my time on? And I met this other mother who also lived in the suburbs where I lived and had this pristine little rambler, like like surgically sterilely clean rambler, <laughs> and 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 no gardens at all. Like they didn't even have like the typical suburban shrubs around the house. She had like nothing to maintain outside. I swear, they were probably in the process of paving over as much as they could. I'm not I'm not even one way to kill those fucking dandelions and. and and, you know, we talked about it. We talked about how we spent our day just as moms comparing notes. And she said, I love to clean. On the weekends, I have my kids help me clean. We wash down the fronts of the cupboards at least, you know, so every so often. And, I mean, she just loved clean. She said, so I know that's what I do. I come home from work. I work all day. I come home and I clean. And I clean on the weekends. And that means I don't have time to garden. And, and the dirt. <laughs> right, it must have been. Where the filth is kept. Must have been. Um, it's not and, paved over yet. <laughs> and so as you're talking about these people who t- thought they could homestead and have day jobs and grow a garden and have animals and, 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 I'm just thinking, wow, this is like when I had kids, I was trying to figure out 
how I could get to everything. And I'm still trying to figure out how I can do all the things. I just want to do all the things, especially cook all the things. And I can't always do it. And I, um, and that's where, you know, Ant Village, uh, I think folks have struggled a little bit. You know, they've had to build a house. And, and I think, um, Evan took on animal systems before anyone else did and was, um, driving the excavator for a lot of other people. And I think that set him back on building his house. And, and, you know, I mean, just because of time. And, I, and I'm and i just thinking I, we would love, you and I spend so much time on the Internet providing the overhead for everything here at Wheaton Labs. We would love it if somebody grows some of the animal products we would like and somebody grows some of the produce we would like. And people just aren't at that stage yet because they're still getting their basics down. And I think we've had a lot of support from permies and online people and other people who have homesteaded that know it can take a while. But, you know, there's also a big wide difference in how people might want to spend their time. I mean, Fred was talking about gardening and making things from scratch and and how that takes longer than if you can just go out and buy it. But that it was part of the lifestyle he was leading so he didn't have to work so much at a day job. And even then, you know, I think some people might choose, oh, they're going to go on more bike trips than they are going to garden or dumpster dive. It's it's so much in how and like Jesse wants to build his BMX bike park. He'd probably rather do that than have animal systems, let's say. I don't know. There's just so much to do and so many choices. It's hard to fit it all in. True. Everybody's going to have their own story. Mm-hmm. And all I'm saying is, is that it pains me when people are like saying that they're going to go out and they're going to go buy land that they have just barely enough. And I, and then I don't know how many people I meet. I've met hundreds, maybe, maybe I'm not sure. I don't think thousands where I've had an actual conversation with them where it's like, we just bought 40 acres or we just bought 11 acres. And then they're moving onto their property. And then there've been a lot of times when it's like, they've been there for two years and then they're saying everybody around us sprays so much. Like one one couple, I remember they were telling me about how the property next to them is really massive, and they spray it with a crop duster. And then the the, the spray, you can smell it at their place when they're spraying, and so they know that it's yeah. getting over there. And they're like, "How do we get them to like not do that?" Because they think that they're doing us a favor. They're helping us out, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> but. All these different people have all these different stories, and all I can think is, is like, wow, they scraped and scraped and scraped, put together $150,000, made a down payment of $100,000, and then they, then they got down to the point that they had zero savings left, and they still had to go to work to pay the mortgage, and they're not really getting a chance to really try it, and then they just end up going back to regular jobs and living in an apartment and they just usually usually flushed all that money down the toilet and uh, like this this guy had resold that same property five times 
Yeah. So that, you know, at any one of those five people could have been like, now we're going to go back to an apartment. So what we're going to do is since we're the legal owners of this property, we're going to sell the property for more than we paid for it and then pay it off. And we'll even have like a little money left over. We'll get our down back, you know, and, and stuff like that. But instead, it went back to the original seller. Um. All right. Now, the notes that I have here for Ant Village Challenge are from, I think, a week and a half ago. So what I want to do is I want to talk about, um, I believe, you know, October 15th. Because one of the things that we said was, is that they, um, uh, when we set up the rules, I set up the rules like, I think, two years ago. And I declared the Ant Village Challenge. And, and so now... It's, I'm kind of surprised that we're having to pick apart everything that I wrote two years ago about the Ant Village Challenge to incredible detail. And, uh, I want to, I want to kind of go over some of that. So one of the things that I said is, is that, um, uh, on September 10th of 2017, then each of the plots will be examined to pick a winner. There have to be at least six people who make the finish line. They have to have 300,000 calories. And the previous winner, they need to have stayed the whole winter in their structure <clears throat> that they built themselves. And, uh, and so it turns out that one of the things I said is, is like winter camping is not allowed. So on October, and then um, a couple of months ago, somebody said, well, when is winter? I need to know when exactly is winter because I'm currently building stuff. And, and so in order to meet the, uh, the Anvilus Challenge, when is winter? So I made it up. I said October 15th to March 15th. Now, granted, technically winter starts on the winter solstice. And goes until, uh, the spring equinox. That's technically winter. But I always kind of felt like, um, you can get to sub-zero temperatures. I've seen it get to sub-zero temperatures in October. And it seems like the middle of October is when it starts getting so damn cold that you really need to be in a house more than, if you, cause if you're, if you're camping, if you're in a tent, and you're outside and it's mid-October, that's, that's really kind of like winter camping. That's, that's some tough camping there. And so I decided October 15th. So on October 15th, we go out to, um, take a look at the different structures and, and, and see how things are going. And there needs to be six. And the rumors are flying that we might not have six. And so, you know, uh, now part of the function of doing the Ant Village Challenge is I kind of thought, well, I got an evil plot and I kind of thought if we get all the ants to line up on this one edge, then I can save myself having to pay somebody to build a fence there. <laughs> and, and I can say now I, I did not get that wish. <laughs> I thought I was being ever so clever. But it turns out I'm not. I'm not getting that. There's some bits of fence. But. And to back up a little bit, the challenge was already extended a full year because we did not have enough ants right. for it to go through. The original dead finish line date was in 2016, right. September of 2016. But it was uh, announced early in 2016 that we would extend it to 2017. 
Right, right. Um, and, and it's because we didn't have or enough ants. A, I think in the fall of 2015, not even. It was a year yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. It was a year ago. Yeah. And so basically when we did the math, it's like we don't have enough people to make the Ant Village Challenge. So I said, I'm willing to extend it a year if you all are willing to have it extended a year. And so they said, okay. Um, now, <clears throat> uh, went out. And to take a look at the precisely six plots, because, you know, I was kind of hoping there'd be like, you know, 10 or 12, but there were exactly six. And uh, that's the way it goes. All right. So I go out. One of the plots, Jim's, is ready. He's ready for winter. He's got a structure. It's, um, I'm, I don't think airtight is the word, but I think when we were up there, we started talking about bug tight versus mouse tight and we're like if bugs can come and go that's not a big deal but it needs to be tight enough to at least keep the local wildlife out like the mice and uh um so then that was that was the standard that we we this i decided to go by um so jim was ready and on the other five i th- is it i think it's safe to say that all five needed at least one of the walls to be completed. So of the remaining five, all five were short on some kind of wallish stuff. Were, were Sean's walls completed? I didn't go in his structure on the 50. He he needed, he like, for example, where his door was, there was a gap over the door that needed to be, you know, finished. Yeah. So, so like, I could stand on a stool and shoot spitballs at you from the inside through that hole. Okay. Does this help paint a picture? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, it, it needed some finish. But I I think it's safe to say of the other five, all five, am I right here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them were further along than others. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think at least one needed three walls. <laughs> it's like... Where's your walls? <laughs> right, right. And and uh, they were fully prepared to uh, stay in their structure as of October fifteenth without walls, which I kind of thought that's well, still kind of winter camping. So, um, uh, all right, let's see. I also felt like I, I specifically said you don't have to have a heat source. But I was kind of thinking like people would do the Wafati thing, you know, and and maybe even combine it with some passive solar. So they'd have a seriously insulated, they'd have a strategy, you know, an architectural strategy of some kind. Um, but without walls and and without a heat source, then that because Jim had a little, he has a little wood stove in his little in his little cabin there. Um, so he's got walls and doors and windows, and it's it's like mouse tight. Mice are not getting into his structure, and he has a little wood stove. Um, of the ones that we went and we looked at on October the fifteenth, um, one of them had a wood stove in it, but it wasn't hooked up. Did any of the others have a wood stove in them? No. No. Fred's. Nope. I don't, no one else had any kind of heat source. Okay. So what we did, what we did was, is we extended it two weeks and said, 
Um, you've got a, um, we're going to extend it two weeks and there was like some trading, uh, um, to, to, you know, so I get something out of it too. And, and then, uh, but by the end of the two weeks, everybody needed to have a heat source. And then we made up the rule. You got to be able to get it up to 70 degrees or more on a whim through the winter. <clears throat> so if somebody's sick or something, they should be able to get very warm. I think Evan felt that his mass had already been charged when he put it on his house. He was trying to put warm thermal mass on his house. So he thought he had some charged thermal mass. But I don't know when you're moving it like that, you know, I don't know how that works. Okay. Um, Josh and Ben had an interesting thing. So, um, uh, Josh had started a structure, and then he pulled the poles out and reset some of them and, and decided to build it slightly differently. In the meantime, Ben is also on his plot, and Ben had built a structure, a pole structure. And, but then they built a third thing to, uh, jointly. And, um, I think Ben mostly started it and then with the challenge date moved up, Josh jumped in to help him and other people jumped in to help, I think. Yeah, Ben, Ben dug the hole. Yeah. And then I think the structure went over it with everyone else's and, and Josh's help. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what would, so Fred, well, how would you describe the thing? Uh, I guess the closest might be a pit house. Yeah. yeah, kind of a traditional uh, North American First Peoples uh, Indian Native American pit house. Right. It was it was some variation on that. You, you know, they didn't have old billboards when they did it before. But right, 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 right. <laughs> so what they did is they built kind of a, a heavy wood frame with big logs, and then they took some. So the big the, the the frame is like twelve inch timbers, and then they took a bunch of wood that's like four to six inches in diameter, like so so big sticks, big so little, little trees, mm-hmm. and they piled them up, um, you know, semi vertically, mostly slanted, to to so that the tip of the tree would go towards the center, and there's just I don't know. 150 of those all around the perimeter. It's a lot. It's like almost teepee-esque shape. Yeah. Uh, Not limbs. Those are trees. Oh, okay. Yeah. Without limbs. But then uh, covered on the outside with Right. So so then they took like old old billboards and they threw that on top of the trees. And then they threw all of the stuff that they cut off the trees on top of that. And then I think that they lay down some more billboard material, and then they were going to bury it. And um, now there was a door opening on one end, and then on the other end there was a bit of a window-like thing. And I've heard that they have since built, like, a Rumford fireplace in there. Yeah. But when we were, you know, looking at it on October the 15th, I think there was like a dozen of us inside of it sitting around talking about the structure. And from the inside, it looked really beautiful, although you're kind of looking at a lot of greenery from in there. And I just kind of got to thinking, like, in about a month and a half, this is going to be where 
all the bugs for miles around move to. Well, and the green boughs are beautiful and smell great, and then they die and they all turn reddish brown and all the needles fall off. So um, that's that's a downside to it. They they call it the bear den. So it was it was uh, pretty fun. I, yeah, after we saw it that day, there were at least ten people sitting around in a circle inside. They um, excavated it even more and made it bigger inside. I guess. Oh wow. Well, I I think it's a really cool thing, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about all their experiences for the winter living in it. Yeah. And um, so now they got a Rumford fireplace in there. They've uh, converted. I, I, last I heard, they were building a door where the door goes, like a more substantial standard door, and then they're putting in a window, like you know, with glass where the window goes. And um, but but it is dark in there, uh, relatively dark. Um, and uh, I I'm really kind of curious to see how that comes out. It's 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 really interesting. Um, <clears throat> all right, Evan's structure. Now Evan's got a lot of cool stuff going on in his whole plot, and he's posted oodles and oodles of pictures. The fence, of course, is amazing, and the most amazing thing that everybody notices. Well, there's two right next to the little road. Um, and one is is that there's a great big berm, and there's a built into the berm is a bit of a tunnel like gate, and you can mm-hmm. and you can walk through the berm to get in. And then there's another spot where it's like a big gate for like cars to go, mm-hmm. and that's where um, Kai built it using a design that I made up, you know, like for using junk pole. Um, and so rather, and then you don't need to have hinges because you kind of use the shape of the wood to be the hinge. Um, and so there's a, a vertical post that sits on top of a pointed branch and then that post can pivot on that branch and then you just connect the rest of your gate to that post. Right. So you mean the design you did was more for the hinge and how it pivots. Yeah. Not the artistry of the gate that Kai came oh, right. with. Oh, <laughs> right. I did a lot of artistry. I can't take any credit for any of that. I just had a hinge design, which right. I still think the hinge design is pretty cool. Yeah. But this is all of Evan. So it's Evan and Kai's plot. Yeah. Um, and they've got the ducks there. They've got um, uh, little, little hoogly beds. Big hoogly beds. They've got an outdoor kitchen. Yeah. And then Evan's got the structure that he's been working on, which um, is a wafati. It's it's got the uh, the umbrella. He's got the umbrella in place, and so he just has two walls that were when we went up there on October fifteenth. Those two walls were mostly constructed, and then he's got a spot inside where he's going to build a rocket mass heater, and that was also started. Um, and, and I don't know, there's, in fact, a lot of the people were kind of, kind of wanting to concede the whole Ant Village challenge and just like, give it to Evan and, give Kai. It to Evan and Kai, you know, it's kind of like they're doing so, such a, so much amazing stuff, but it's like, no, they're not done. Well, and six people need to get to the finish line. Well, I, I was surprised at the amount of 
people saying, well, we're working on the houses. We're going to live here and be here all winter. We're just working on them. You know, why do we have to have walls in October? Um, I think they have been so used to camping year round and in all the elements out there that the idea of needing walls was a bit foreign to them and they felt October was really early for winter and only having a month and a half notice that they have have walls by October 15th seemed onerous to some people uh, and I I think that's I mean we we have been living in relative luxury in the Fisher Price house and so it's hard for me to imagine not wanting walls by October 15th. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to me, it's been a little bit of a mind bender to realize, wow, they really didn't think they needed walls that early. And then you extended it two more weeks and they still didn't really have walls. So, and these are small structures. It's not like, you know, so the missing walls didn't require that much wood to cover up. It's been, it's been a little warmer these last couple of weeks, but I remember around that time, I sure was thankful to have a nice wafati with walls and a rocket mass heater to go back to at night because yeah. as soon as the sun goes down, it starts cooling off fast. It does. Yeah. We've, we've had unusually cloudy weather, which I think has kept it warmer than normal, but uh, the clouds cleared away yesterday and today, and so we had frost this morning. So, yeah. Uh, the next structure is Steve, um, and so this is Evan's dad, um, and and Steve, I, I get the impression that Steve loves to get time to bond with his shovel. Steve loves to shovel. I, I mean that literally. I think okay. he really loves to shovel. <laughs> but he had decided that around his structure, he needed a four-foot-deep trench and then he's going to put a French drain in the bottom of that to help keep things dry. And I, when I saw this trench, and I heard that it was hand dug, and and I, I kind of got the impression that Steve's like ready to go dig some more. Um, I'm I'm kind of thinking like, oh, today I learned that I am one of the laziest people in the world ever because <laughs> I have done some digging in my time and. That much digging just looks like an enormous amount of work. I remember one time when I was like eight, I decided I was going to build an underground home, and I got a shovel, and I went out to a spot, and I dug, and I dug, and I dug, and I think I probably dug a hole about two feet deep before I was like, screw this shit. I'm done. This is too much work. So... Uh, I need to point out that a French drain is the perfect solution for 8% of the things where a French drain is put in. In other words, French drains suck 92% of the time. Or I suppose a more accurate way of putting it is that um, French 92% of the time, French drains um, are, are installed dominantly for the function of wishful thinking. They do not do what people want them to do. Um, so people think that water will fall from the sky, we call it rain, and then once it's on the ground, it, each raindrop will tell the other raindrops, down low, there is a French drain, let's all go there! 
And then all the little raindrops head towards the French drain, and once there, they party, and then they move themselves out in an orderly fashion, and then the area remains dry. They think that that's what a French drain does. But what a French drain is supposed to be for is if the water table rises to the point that you're going to have flooding, then it will make sure that the flooding doesn't get any taller than the French drain. The French drain will then drain things from a water-saturated area, a place where the water is at, like, it's flooding. And and then it'll it'll take that water out. Um, so it's, I think that the better solution is is to shape the land around a structure in such a way to move water away from the structure without a French drain. Just, it's called, they're called ditches. And you can make a ditch really shallow, you know, and it just needs to run slightly downhill. It could be so shallow, people aren't even aware that there's a ditch there. And I think that's the smartest way to go. Or other sloping or umbrellas. We're, Fred's been working on a lot of that around our shop. A lot of sloping. I've been trying to shape it so the water goes away from the shop and mostly away from the berm shed. And yeah. what tool did you use? Tractor. Okay, I was going to say shovel. Oh, yeah, well, both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, put, putting some time in on that shovel there. So, um, so Steve... Has he's he he put in a French drain and I I don't I think the French drain is not going to do what Steve wants it to do, um and but that trench was mighty impressive, um I'm, and again I don't I don't think the trench is going to do what he wants to do either but still that was an impre- that's a that was a huge trench yeah it was it was well and Steve's strategy was um he was trying to go with a smaller structure than what he'd like to eventually end up in so that he had less to construct before this winter. Uh, but his smaller structure, which he had originally planned as a shed, he decided to make his home for this winter. And then he has plans to build a bigger structure next year. He's also um, building a solar cart, you know. Right, like the Volkswagen. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he had some neat ideas for that too. So, so there's. I'm just trying to bring in some of the other things besides all his digging that you're going on about. Right. <laughs> no, I, I. It looks cool, but it, I don't think it's going to do what he wants it to do. Yeah. Janet's structure. Um, uh, she wanted to do some stuff with passive solar. She needs to kind of get. She needs to get her on October 15th. She needs to get her roof done. I don't know how much further along it is now. But um, uh, and a, and a heat source. But she's building something really small. Um, and but the thing is, is that she started like at the first of October or so. She didn't have much. And uh, but she did a workshop and got some people to come and help then. And then she's been wheeling and dealing. And yeah. and she's gotten a lot done in a very short amount of time. Um, mostly through I think you know, cleverness of negotiations. Yeah, she, she surpassed um, Steve's structure with the where she, the stage she was at with her structure. She had, like, more walls than Steve did. And right. And Steve started earlier this summer. Right, right. And I, I and plus, I think that uh, what she did is uh, she had, she set up the workshop, 
to do the building blitz. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then she also lined up Jim, whose structure is already done, to teach the event. Yeah. And, and so, um, now it's like, wow, that was quick. Um, all right. Uh, we looked at Sean. Sean was the last ant, ant number six. Um, and, uh, he, I, I've heard a rumor that his, uh, wood stove is now in and, uh, but he, he needed to finish his walls a little bit, but he looked like it wouldn't take too much. The biggest thing I thought looking at his stuff was, is that he was deciding to go with, uh, a more conventional green roof rather than doing something Ailer style or Wafati style. Um, and, and so then he needed to do more, probably more Prennicky style is what he was going to um, build. And when I was there, he, he didn't have any of the dirt on it. He just had uh, the roof on, and then there was plasticky material up there. So then the the green part needed to be added still. So, all right, that was that's my notes for October 15th. Yeah, and did you already mention that they were all, to try and meet the deadlines, they were all trying to help each other, they were doing the Amish-style barn-raising stuff. I didn't mention that. And that is, I mean, that's some serious community stuff right yeah. there. That's yeah. So apparently what I heard that they did is that they all get together and be like, okay, today we're all going to go over to Janet's plot. And we're all going to spend four hours getting Janet's stuff ready. And then we're all going to go over to the the bear den and do it, and or the bear cave or whatever it is, and, and yeah. do it there. And, and so I... I, I thought that sounded really super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Then tragedy. Uh, one of the ants, I'm, I'm choosing to not say which one, um, had a family member become seriously ill and, and, and so would not be able to meet the bare minimum requirements. Um, we tried to come up with a way so that five ants could finish it, but it sounded like things just fizzled quickly. I, I came up with a, a change, um, and, and I don't know whether it was like, no, we don't like your change or, uh, or whatever, uh, to allow five ants. And, and, um, uh, it sounds like, you know, uh, no, the Ant Village Challenge is off, which is unfortunate. It was getting really exciting there. There's only six contenders left, and it's a race to the end. But and there has to be six who make it to the finish line. And uh, but now and then it seems like there's also kind of a big sigh of relief because with the end village challenge, there's all the rules and saying, okay, you got to stay in the structure all winter. And some people were kind of like, but I want to go away for a month and a half to go do things during the winter. And, um, and it's like, well, that's, if you go away, it's not exactly staying in your structural winter. And, and so just the idea of being able to get out from underneath the rules. And, and there was also kind of a big thing where a lot of people were kind of of the mindset of like, well, we all know Evan's going to win. <laughs> and I'm kind of saying, we don't know that. Is that written in stone? But eh, they were all kind of feeling like they were going to adhere to the rules so that Evan could get the prize. And then once Evan kind of got wind of that, then Evan's like, I I don't want to be beholden to people. I don't want people to be doing that just for me. I want people to be in it because they're going to try and get the prize too. Um, and Evan posted something to clarify exactly what his position was on it. But 
the bottom line is the Ant Village challenge is is off. It's done. Yeah. I mean Ant Village continues on. And and we still have, you know, Ant Village plots available. Um but yeah, the challenge isn't happening now. Well and the deadlines seem to really stress people out. I mean, I think even the people who were here in 2015 um, and have been working on their plots for for almost two years now, they kind of felt like the deadlines to try and have everything ready so it's not winter camping seemed like pushing them at a pace they weren't really ready for or willing to meet and and one of the gappers who came and spent quite a bit of time in Ant Village said that's the one thing he really liked about Ant Village is that people were not beholden to a man, the man of sorts. They could work on their work when they wanted, work on their homes when they wanted, work on their gardens when they wanted, kind of set their own schedules. They weren't beholden to anybody else's stuff. And and when people tried to meet all, all those deadlines, you know, uh, which didn't seem like that big of a deadline to us, we thought, okay, they've known this for a year. And in fact, uh, Sean had thought the deadline was September. He had to have his house ready by September. So that's, even though he arrived in 2016 and didn't start on his plot um, in 2015 like some did, he he was trying to be ready, to be winter ready before fall. So um, some people got it, some people didn't. People were confused. They were so used to kind of being at their own pace that having these deadlines, they felt sprung on them, even though there was lots of notice for it, just made them work in a way they weren't comfortable with. And they felt they rushed to some aspects of their house they would have rather spent some time figuring out and crafting just so. Right. And and so then, you know, you're you're saying something about like, oh, it's it's great to not be under the thumb of the man and mm. and it's like, oh no, they totally are and I am that man. Oh. <laughs> um in fact, Jim said something about while he wants to continue doing, you know, building more and more and more here and doing more projects and and he wants to try and flip a property. He wants to like get a new acre, build a new structure and then sell the new one or the old one to somebody. And, and like that's gonna be his, his bidness kind of a thing. He wants to, to kind of do that. But every once in a while, Jim will say, sometimes he's thinking about going somewhere and like buying a few acres, like, and then he'll have a deed and he'll own it. And then he can use plywood if he wants to. Cause I don't allow plywood. I don't allow wafer board. And, and I kind of feel like, uh, you know, cause like, uh, I guess part of the thing to say is, is that I like the idea that this is one place out of a hundred thousand, and then these are our standards for this plot. And and I like the idea that eventually whatever it is that we do here might be something that other people will try to do on other properties. And so on this particular property, we don't use plywood, we don't use wafer board. Um, and, and we minimize the use of paint and there's other things that are kind of, we minimize the use of cement. Um, you know, we don't, it's not zero, but it's near zero. 
And the roofs, you've wanted green roofs. Um, True. Too. So, which is, which is very different, um, uh, from a lot of places. And, and there was, you know, a little bit of an educational process for quite a few people who probably weren't as well versed with your stuff as others might be. Like, well, we're renting it. We, we're renting these plots. That means we can do what we want. <laughs> and, and it's not quite like that. And, and yeah. the idea is that people want to do it this way because they also want the least toxins possible, the most natural as possible. Right. That's that's the goal. I th- I think we're making it really cheap to facilitate the people that are keen on these kinds of restrictions. Yeah. Like to them, it's not restrictions. They're glad that their neighbors are being restricted, and you know. So it, it, it and on top of that, I think a really important thing is is that it seems to me like this particular community is coming together really well, and it could be because they're coming together because of the values. That are, you know, and I'll also use the word forced, but I think that for everybody here, it, it doesn't really feel all that forced. It's like they like these guidelines. They, they, so. they like these requirements. I hope so. Does this seem true to you, Fred? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of the people that might want to use those materials more would have looked at your restrictions and said, I'm going somewhere else. And they, right. you know, so the people here, they understand why you don't want to use a lot of these toxins, and so they're not anxious to use them in their houses. Yeah, and um, so there's the standards that we have here are going to be something that a, a few people like, and and it's just a, it's only a few people that we want to have come around. Right now, all right. <clears throat> so the Ant Village challenge is over. Ant Village continues. This podcast is continued in part two. 